Hi, you're back with Jamie Brown and Greg Hull listening to Studio 7500. Thanks for sticking with us. We are going to move on to our interview with our guest today, Dr. Joy Swan, who is the chair of the Department of Psychology in our School of Media, Culture, and Design. Welcome to the show, Joy. And the crowd goes wild. (laughs) Thank you, guys. It's nice to be here. So let's just start at the beginning. Tell us about yourself. Well, I was born, no. Um, (laughs) So I have been here at Woodbury for 20 years. Wow. I know. Let's see if I get any kind of sympathy pay for that or something. (laughs) Um, No. Uh, (laughs) So so I actually am an applied social psychologist. Um, I earned my doctorate out at Claremont Graduate University um, back when it was Claremont Graduate School. And, uh, but I didn't start out in psychology. I actually started as an undergrad at the University of Texas, Hook'em Horns, um, as a bio pre-med major. And I had always planned on being a doctor. That was the only thing I thought I had ever wanted to do. And then somewhere in about the second, third year of college, we started talking about things like the day in the life of a, of a doctor. And I was going to go into pediatrics. And so I had to do this sort of thought on what would it be like to be a pediatrician. And I started thinking about, well, what happens? Oh, Johnny comes in, he either has to get shots or he gets a checkup and you give him a lollipop and you say, see you next time. Or a child comes in with a problem and you might have to tell a parent their child has cancer. And I just thought, well, none of that sounds like anything I really want to do. It sounds like too superficial a relationship with people. And I certainly don't want to tell anyone their child is, is really ill. And so I talked to a counselor and they said, oh, well, if you want to work with people, you have to go into psychology. So like most undergraduates, um, I was going to work with children. I was going to be a developmental psychologist. And the closer I got to graduating in that area, I thought, wow, I started imagining right the whole idea of being a therapist or clinical aspect of psychology. And and I thought, I can't even figure myself out. How am I going to tell someone else how to figure themselves out? And so I thought, wow, that's too intimate a relationship with people. And that just didn't sound satisfying at all. So I, I kind of floundered. I knew eventually I'd have to go on to do something. But um, I was very fortunate. I got a position as the director of AIDS education out at Cal State Northridge. And I directed their Eros program, which was education and resources on sexuality. And this was back in like 1989, 90, so it was the height of the AIDS crisis, and I got this exposure to um, just this stigma and this disease and people's opinions and attitudes and beliefs about sexuality. And being a girl from Texas in the Reagan 80s, um, this was all very eye-opening for me, and I, I found it just quite interesting that people could be stigmatized based on what they did in private and things like that. So it turns out, lo and behold, there is a field of psychology that looks at things like attitudes and prejudice and beliefs and things like that. And it's this field of social psychology. So when I went on to graduate school, um, I was able to take my love of science and apply it to research and my desire to work with people and apply it to teaching. And lo and behold, it turned out that students were my perfect relationship with people. So I have the research that feeds my brain and the teaching that feeds my soul. That's amazing, Joy. So, do you, so you also teach, right? You're, you're not only the chair, but you teach. What courses do you teach? So right now I'm teaching our graduating senior thesis course. Um, so I'm dealing with a bunch of little stressed, <laughs> stressed out people trying to get their senior thesis projects um, finished in time. And then I'll be taking them all to the Western Psychological Association in April to present that research before they graduate. So I'm doing that right now. Um, I teach a course on the psychology of fear. Um, but I think my hallmark course is my human sexuality class because that relates directly to my research. Um, but I also teach things like intro psych and social psych and those kind of things. And we do want to talk about research a bit later because we always talk about sex on the show. <laughs> nice. You're my kind of people. <laughs> we actually have never done that, so we're kind of excited. <laughs> How did you end up at Woodbury then? That's a great question. So I actually, so Claremont was a very strong research university. It's an applied program. Um, It was all about studying, um, experimenting, empirical research applied to human behavior. And in my case, it was looking at disease prevention research at the time related to HIV, AIDS, and STI uh, prevention, right? And so in my particular area, it started out with how do you prevent people from contracting these things? Why do people use condoms? Why don't they? How do you get them to change their behavior? Those kind of things. And 
my research advisor happened to be doing a study that enlisted the help of a professor, actually a dean we used to have here named Mary Collins. And Mary Collins and my uh, research advisor had both gone to UCLA. And so they were collaborating on something. And so it was through that that I learned that there was a potential position opening up at Woodbury at the time. And I was just about a year out of graduating. And so I sort of kept my eye on that. And lo and behold, the position didn't fund. And I thought, well, that must mean they need someone. They just didn't get it right away. And so I contacted the university and asked if there was any teaching possibilities. And they said, can you teach stats? And I said, of course I can teach stats. And so I taught stats and the next year the position got funded and I've been here ever since. So directly out of graduate school, I defended my dissertation and did my job talk here the same week. Wow. Have you had a, have you ever had a private practice or no, no, no. you just, so you not clinical you at do, all. you're not clinical at all. Okay. No. I do not come to me with your problems. <laughs> <laughs> Darn. I thought I was going to have a shrink session today. <laughs> well, we can talk about sex, but <laughs> well, let's, um, let's talk a little bit about the program here. Um, and you know, we were joking about this earlier. We always talk about how authentic we are and we don't <laughs> like to overly promote, but we do want to get in inside of the program. We know psychology is a very popular major. Um, and so talk a little bit about what we offer, what our programs are about. Why anyone would come here. Right. Absolutely. <clears throat> so a couple things. Um, one is, of course, we have the best program. But, <laughs> you know, I think the selling points are when you compare and contrast. Because, as you said, psychology degrees are a diamond does. And every university offers a degree in psychology, second most common major in the United States. So why come to a small private university for a psychology degree? Why wouldn't you go to one of the big state schools? Clearly, they must be better, right? So I will sort of give the scoop that I kind of give everyone. And it's not that... It, I don't want it to sound like a sales pitch, but it, I really think these are authentic reasons to come to a small university. And then I will conclude with a caveat on that. <laughs> so, I mean, one of the great things about our program is, you know, along with everyone else, we have our small class sizes, but our psych students are also guaranteed their psych classes. So even if a psych class fills, um, I make sure that our psych majors are allowed in those classes. Um, so Consequently, our students graduate on time, right? Our transfer students generally two years. Our first-year students are in and out in four years. Right now at um, the state schools, the all psychology programs are impacted. And what that means is that there are more students wanting that degree than there are seats for butts. And so if you come in even as a transfer student, so even though they have this articulation agreement to guarantee entry, they don't guarantee classes. And so the last time we looked at Cal State Northridge, for example, it's almost seven years from freshman to graduation. Um, and they have a graduation rate that's about 25% of what our graduation rate is. So imagine you're trying to get an undergraduate degree. It's taking you nearly seven years. Um, sometimes life impedes in that and things get in the way and it's a lot easier to move on. Um, so our students are graduating on time. And what that translates into is that you know, that means they're out in the workforce or they've moved on to graduate school. And so in the time it takes you to get a bachelor's degree at a state school, you either have been working for two years earning money or you've gone on and could have gotten a master's degree in the same time, which changes your lifetime earning potential. Um, so sort of those factors, I think, are really compelling um, because I know that when you look at a private school's tuition there's people tend to experience sticker shock, but if you amortize that over how many years it's going to take you to, to get a degree, um, versus then you could have gotten a master's or you could have been working right that it, in the long run, the costs are not so significantly different. Um, but I think the biggest thing for us is that we, because we're so small are able to offer one of the most rigorous psychology programs anywhere. I know, um, our students from any background all take stats, they take advanced statistics, they take research methods, they take advanced research methods, and boys and those good selling points. <laughs> um, so, But the reason we can do that is because our students get such personalized attention. And all of our students um, complete a senior thesis, which is an empirical research project of their own design on their own topic, anything that interests them. They collect the data, they analyze the data, they write that up, and they present it at a professional conference. And I think that we do that because, again, I sit down every week right now 
I have an hour individual meeting outside of class time with all my seniors just to keep them on track so I know their project. And what that translates into is that if you're applying to graduate school or applying for a job, you have research experience. All of our students know how to use SPSS, which is a statistical package for the social sciences, which is the computer program that does stats. And um, if you're trying to get into graduate school, you have done research, you've presented research at a, on, you know, on a large stage. But also then when I go to write letters or recommendation, I know my students. They're not just a faceless, nameless person in the crowd, right? I know them. I know what their, their dreams, their hopes are. I know what their goals are. I know where they want to get to. I know how they've performed in classes and, and those kind of things. And I think that is what translates into a really personal letter of recommendation as opposed to sort of a fill in the blank, right? Student blank was in my blank class and earned a blank, mm-hmm. right? Um, I can say, hey, I know this person, they've done this. This is why they're interested in this field and where they want to go. And so I think that helps us with our success in getting students into graduate school. Uh, On that note, can you share the different fields that your students want to get into? Yes. So a lot of them really want to go into clinical. Uh Um, I try to beat it out of them, but darn, some of them them get through on that. Um, No, actually. um, So I'd say at least 50% of our students... Um, if not more, want to go into the clinical fields, into the helping uh, professions um, based on that social work, um, any type of therapy, counseling, you know, MFCC, MFT, um, those kinds of fields. Um, but I've had students who have gone on to law school. Actually, that seems to be a really popular one right now. A lot of people going on to law school. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had people that want to go into forensic psychology. I actually have a former student who earned a PhD in primatology or primate social behavior from St. Andrews University in Scotland. Hmm. So it kind of goes all over. Um, but we do have some that I have former students who are now college professors. Um, I have former students who are doing statistics and research work, developmental, applied, um, mm. a lot of people working in things like uh, autism and addictions fields right now. Very interesting. So I know that the psychology um, department has different concentrations. Is that, can, you, can you go into that a little bit? Sure. So that's brand new, coming, coming soon, this <laughs> fall. Um, so one of the things we wanted to do was sort of highlight this idea that, yes, you can get a psychology degree anywhere. Um, but it tends to be pretty prescribed that you just fulfill these foundational psychology courses. And it's not until graduate school that you say, hey, I want to focus in on something, right? I want to, to concentrate in a particular area. So what we've done is that, yes, we're still requiring everyone to take sort of the breadth of foundational courses in psychology, but we're allowing students to take their elective units, their psychology elective units, and concentrate in doing um, a particular area. So the three concentrations we'll have starting in fall are clinical, media, and research. Um, and I can go into more or less detail well, on yeah, that. I, what would you like to hear? I think, go ahead. Go ahead. I'm, I'm sorry. sorry. I'm t- I know. I'll let you talk about all the sex part. I'll, I'll give that, <laughs> <laughs> that discussion to you. <laughs> I want to know more about the um, media. That's uh, what I was going to ask. Okay. okay. Yeah, we're on the same page then. Excellent. Well, so... To me, that's really exciting. I mean, first of all, one of the things we could talk about is what the heck is a psychology program doing in a school of media, culture, and design, right? Speaking of something unique and one of a kind in all the country. Um, But because we are housed with this sort of media-heavy area, um, it's only natural that we can kind of shape um, some of our course offerings, related to media. But uh, for me, the bigger reason is because that's the future of psychology. Right. This is where psychology is going. If you want to be the, the Amerigo Vespucci of, <laughs> of psychology, then media psych is the way to go. Because, you know, they talk about people, the, the, the young people being a, a sort of media generation, but we're actually a media culture. Um, every one of us is impacted by the access to media, social media, the internet, all of those kinds of things. And so forever, not me, <laughs> not at all, Greg, no. put down your phone. Um, so, so this idea that, you know, for example, there's been research for a hundred years on bullying. Well, but not on cyberbullying. And so cyberbullying adds a whole new layer to what we know the impact of being bullied is on people because it's never been on such a grand scale and so permanent and so public. 
Um, so that's, you know, an area. But but you also think about people can fall in love with people they've never met before now. Mm-hmm. Right. And it happens. Mm-hmm. And so this idea of, well, really? Um, or just something as simple as, have you ever like texted somebody and they just misconstrue what you're saying? And yeah. you're like, where the hell's my sarcasm font? <laughs> right? It's like, it's a joke. It's a joke. Hence the invention of emojis. Because it used to be that humans have evolved to learn to communicate face to face. And that's why my mirror neurons look at your, you know, your body language. I can look at your tone of voice, um, you know, the way you hold your stance, all of those kinds of things. And it tells me whether we're having a friendly conversation, right? I can tell your tone, you know, it's, oh, sarcastic, right? Those kinds of things. How do you communicate that over a telephone, right? Or over the internet, um, and so just the entire way humans have, are now communicating is different and we don't have the research on it. How is, how is this all changing us, right? This idea of social media, right? And, and this selfies and all of these kinds of things where we now sort of live these very public lives. So for, for, for those who are interested in sort of pioneering the path, media technology or media psychology is the, is the future. That is, uh, sorry, Jamie. No, go ahead. That's, that's really exciting and scary and a lot of things. One thing I wanted to bring up before, you know, as we're talking about this is, and Jamie, you can chime in too. My thought being in the workforce for, you know, however long it's been, is that psychology plays into everything we do all the time. It's probably the most important skill that any, you know, for us to be able to understand people, to be able to understand, you know, things like emotional intelligence and all of this stuff. Like, it's great that I can type, right? (laughs) But But conflict resolution and personality differences is so important. So, um, like, in a way, psychology, like, we often talk about uh, liberal arts programs as, you know, I'm a liberal arts, um, I have a liberal arts background, and I do think that I got a lot from that that I carry with me. And I feel like psychology is is incredibly similar to that. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I'd go a step further and really say that there's there is no field you could go into where a better understanding of people isn't going to make you better at your job. And so, you know, our intro psych class, everyone takes the intro psych class, but we talk about this idea that, you know, even if you're an architecture major, well, it's all well and good if you just want to sit in a room and draw plans and dream up different, you know, uh, landscapes, if you're uh, that type of, of architect or buildings or the design part of it. But you need clients and you need people that like your work, right? And so you have to be able to sell to people so you need to be able to influence them and persuade them and right work on changing their mind if they want it one way and you want another way, things like that. And so the ability to talk to people, to understand how do you probe for someone what they want, there's an emotional element to our buildings, right? And so there's, there's always psychology there. Even in, in something like graphic design, right? If you're designing the packaging for a product, well, what colors do you use? What kind of font do you use? And so we have a lot of research that says humans uh, like rounded fonts better than angular fonts, um, that they're more friendly. And, you know, we say don't ever have a restaurant or a food product that uses the color blue, Mm. those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. And so just all of that um, in the area of just understanding humans. But it's all about the idea that we're also all in relationships, whether they're work relationships or social relationships or parenting relationships or whatever it is, that the, the idea of interacting with humans is what we do. We are social creatures. We're social animals. If you're on a deserted island, I always tell people you'd never need a psychiatrist because it's just all the other people in the world that, that right. uh, tend to drive you nuts, right? Um, but, <laughs> so unless we're all going to go off to our own little islands, then yes, psychology is very useful. Definitely. So let's take it to social media. And you mentioned you have kids. I do. Are they at the age where they're using social media? Oh, yes. They're so, all college age. Yes. And I have three in college as well. Uh, I, as up? I roll my eyes. We'll go have wine later. Yeah. So um, Instagram, how is that impacting our, I have a daughter, my 19 year old daughter 
who is, you know, just constantly following it and watching everybody. And her friends are all looking better and skinnier and posing and modeling and her life sucks. And so-and-so got the new car and I don't, I'm poor and I don't have anything. So it just seems like it's really negative for our kids. Well, it's interesting. What's funny is, so a lot of my students still want to go into the to areas of clinical psychology, um, but almost all of my seniors do their senior thesis project on something related to the, to social media. And so it does tell you that this is the life they're living. This is the thing that is most impactful in their lives. And so they're asking all these whys and what fors. In fact, I have a student I just met with today who's doing a project looking at rejection sensitivity and posting behavior on Instagram. And so she's looking at things like the need to belong, how sensitive you are to being rejected and how sensitive you are to being rejected about your appearance. Um, and self-esteem and looking at if that translates into the number of posts and the number of emotion-based words people use in their posts. Mm. Um, and so it's just interesting looking at that. But she basically found that her model didn't necessarily predict because everybody had really high self-esteem and nobody was, was uh, sensitive to being rejected. But she did find they had a very strong need to belong. And that that related to a number of posts and the number of emotion-based words. Um, I had a student last year who looked at narcissism among the millennial generation. And so, again, it's one of the stereotypes of our millennial generation that, of course, all of this self-focus is creating a world full of narcissists. Um, but she did not find that to be hmm, the case. And she looked at different um, generations all the way up to baby boomers. And found the no difference in narcissism. And so that actually mirrors some of the research that is coming out as well. Um, so it's a matter of maybe us as older people trying to put our growing up experiences onto them. So what would it be like if I suddenly was on the social media every minute of every day? And, and, but if that's your norm, then you adjust in different ways. Um, so I think the fear is less founded, but, you know, I have one of my kids as well who there's not enough bandwidth and data in the world to go through the number of videos that he watches and posts he looks at and these kinds of things. And it's just it's a constant literally as you talk, it's just it's always there and, and mm -hmm. something's running in the background always. But you could also look at it, on the other hand, as the idea that people are becoming sort of absorptive data people, right? That they're just constantly taking in information and constantly looking into sources. And they find, for example, that people that are younger are more skeptical of things on the Internet than older generations. So maybe they're less susceptible to things like fake media, right? Fake news, those kind mm -hmm. of things. They've learned to have a critical eye to the things they read and post where, you know, you and I say, well, if someone said it, we take them at their word. Yeah. Um, so we're seeing less of that. What about, what, sorry, Greg, and then you can go. What about the, the idea that um, we're, we're all so much more connected because of social media, but we're, we're more lonely than ever. Have you heard of that study? There's that, I've heard that going around. Yeah. There's also looking at women and unhappiness too, and things like that. Um, so I think that idea is, Again, I had already said, but we are social animals, right? We are, you know, spindly legged, weak little uh, creatures. And the only way that we're strong is that we are grouped together. And so um, we have not only sort of this um, emotional need to belong, but we have a survival need to belong. Um, and so in that sense, in one way, you can build a lot of really superficial relationships on social media, right? It's that idea of like, how many likes do I get? Like, 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 okay, validation that I'm a good person. But you find more and more, I mean, I have friends, my kids' friends that, you know, they have play dates, quote unquote, but they're not in the same house, right? It's like, well, how are you? Well, we're on, you know, we're playing Fortnite or whatever. Um, and so you're like, well, but where's the human connection? Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that there's that fine line between making sure that you have human contact that feels deep in addition to maybe the more superficial contact about just getting likes or just posting a selfie of yourself, right? Those kinds of things that you'd still need to have someone that you feel understands you. So I have another child 
she's on the on media on, on the internet all the time, but she belongs to these not just chat rooms, but these social groups, all centered around some common, you know, uh, like, and she considers those her best friends. She really does. She's like, these are the people I connect with. We all have this same, you know, view on the world or this same thing that we like that we're connected to. How could I possibly meet 50 people, you know, in my local area that have this intense interest in something that is important to me mm-hmm. as well? So I know, you know, you're an academic, so you take it from, you know. You know I is smart. <laughs> well, you take, you take these things from a very reasoned point of view, which I, which I think is great. But would you say you're a glass, it sounds like you're a glass half full type of person when it comes to social media, or is it just that there, there isn't enough that we know? Well, I think, again, it's, it's always the lament of the older people to look at how things were always better or how right. the world is always on its way to doom and disaster. And we always look at the good old days, right? Well, you know, my good old days were someone else's present who was looking back at those good, you know, so it's just a right. constant human condition that the past was always better. And it, again, part of getting older is that you aren't as connected Right. I was not born with a cell phone in my hand. So my connection to it is very different. Um, so but I think there again, it's it's like everything else. The world's not necessarily getting better or worse. It's a pendulum that swings back and forth. And so it's not that we're always progressing. It depends on which direction you're facing. Right. Mm -hmm. So there are positives and negatives. Like I said, cyberbullying is certainly a negative. The cyberbullying happens because we've taken the personal, you know, the personalness out of bullying someone. When I, you know, in in the old days, if you were on a school ground and you were bullying someone, you were looking the person in the eye that you were bullying. And the event happened and it may have been witnessed by 10 other people. And that's it, right? People tend to be less cruel face to face than they are under the anonymity of, of the internet. And so people will say extraordinarily cruel things over the internet and the impulse control that you might get from being face to face with someone goes out the door. You can just type away and there's just no, nothing in your brain is looking at that person as you're typing these things. And then it goes out to innumerable people and it lives forever. So it's not all roses. It's just not all doom either. Yeah. Interesting. It's all very interesting and thought provoking. Well, Sorry, Brandon, I need to get closer to the mic. Yeah. Boy. <laughs> I could, I could hear him yelling at us. from here. <laughs> So your research is on human sexuality, sex, um, and I know you've written about bisexuality, and I wanted to ask you about that because it seems, maybe I'm not describing it correctly, but it seems like bisexuality is sort of the redheaded stepchild of, <laughs> of sex. Well, as the redhead, here I'm... Um, it's a matter of... of yes. But um, the idea that... And to my like, stepkids, I, think I are, love you. <laughs> I, maybe I should have used a different uh, metaphor. <laughs> I'm not very good at this. <laughs> the, but the idea that... Uh, you can come lay on my furniture afterwards and tell me your problems. <laughs> the idea that a lot of people maybe think it's made up or mm-hmm. not real. Did you, mm-hmm. you know, want to talk a little bit about that, what mm-hmm. you've learned? And... So it's interesting. So again, my, all my research is always related to sexuality, sexual behavior. But as I said, it, I sort of started out more on the stigma side and looking at... Um, prevention and um, those kinds of factors. And it was actually one of my students who graduated in like 2003, who did her senior project on looking at how heterosexual people define bisexuality and kind of under what conditions they would define a woman as bisexual, um, who maybe had historically been heterosexual. And she went on and got her PhD and became a professor. And she contacted me and she's like, I got to do research. I have got to get tenure. And so I said, well, let's go back and look at that project you did. Let's see what we can do to tweak it and, and you know, start over again. And so we did. And we actually um, published, we're actually on our fourth study out of that original research. 
And so it's been very fascinating. And then a couple of years ago, we were approached by um, Springer Publications and asked if we wanted to write a book on an academic book on uh, bisexuality. And we said, of course. Um, and so we did. And so I guess now we're experts on bisexuality. And so we, um, yeah, we actually just did a keynote speech um, for the Los Angeles um, Gay Lesbian Psychotherapy Association. And so it's very fascinating. So yes, you hit the nail on the head in the sense that um, bisexuality is a fascinating area of research. I could spend the rest of my life on it just because there are so many layers to it. And one is that idea that people don't necessarily believe in it as a sexual orientation. And so it's quite um, a unique thing because if your child comes to you and says, I'm a gay or lesbian, um, we don't tend to go, no, you're not. You'll outgrow it, right? We just go, okay. Certainly if your kid comes to you and says, I'm heterosexual, you go, well, of course. Um, but bisexuality is one that people are told either A, that it's performative, it's just, you know, while you're in college and when you get out of college, you'll go back to being straight, um, or that it stems from um sort of holding on to this heterosexual privilege and not really wanting to admit that you're gay or lesbian. And so it's kind of seen as this transition, right? The, the, this first step you take before coming out as gay or lesbian. And so it, in, in, in either case, it's either that you're going to revert back or that it's just a stepping stone. Um, and so we find that that is not the case, um, that yes, have there been uh, gay or lesbian people who have said they were bisexual and then eventually say, yes, I'm gay. Um, Yes. Um, but, you know, we also find that that sort of hides the, the body of people um, that are bisexual and bi are bisexual across their lifespan. But there's a number of other factors. Think about, you know, we st still tend to be monogamous in our culture, whether you're gay, straight, bisexual, whatever. Um, and so most people that are bisexual, their bisexuality is hidden by their current relationship status. Because most of us would, would just assume if you're assume if you're with a cross-sex individual, you must be straight. And if, with your, if you're with a same-sex person, you must be gay or lesbian. Mm -hmm. Right? So there's that invisibility. And then there's just no community. And so what we talk about is that, that bisexuality is the least like, likely group to come out or be open about their sexual orientation. And because who wants to be part of a community-less community? Right? Um, and so that's um, a big factor in it as well. Um, and, you know, some of the things we find is that it's, it leads to poor outcomes for bisexual individuals. They have no support group. They tend to be ostracized by both straight and gay and lesbian communities um, because you're not one of us. You're an imposter, an intruder or whatever. Um, and so it's kind of this place. But we the, I think the thing that's most shocking is it is the largest um, subgroup. So when you look at the LGBT umbrella, the largest subgroup is the B. 40 mm. percent of all sexual minorities are bisexual, but you'd never know it. Yeah. It seems like today there is, you talk about there being a rift of some sort between like no community for bisexual people. It seems like now there's a trans community that has separated itself, which, you know, they're becoming uh, they're able to be open now much more than they were even, you know, maybe 20 years ago. And that that's created a riff as well with much of the rest of the... Well, I don't know if rift is the right word, but it always sort of goes into this idea that, listen, if you're a stigmatized group, you don't want your stigma to become invisible, your experience of right. stigma to become invisible. And so there is a natural fear in all stigmatized groups, whether it's by race or gender or sexual orientation, that if someone else comes along, it takes the focus off of your suffering and your mm -hmm. stigma and the things that are happening to you. Um, and so in that case, you could say, well, people who have fought for gay rights, right, and for visibility and for equality um, for gay and lesbian individuals have this sense of, you know, certainly when I first started in, in the field, and it was life or death, right? You had the whole uh, slogan, right? Silence equals death. And so it was this sense that we have to be the most important thing going on right now. In the transgender community, you now have that sense, right? So you have the transference of what 
was happening in terms of some of the hate crimes and some of the um, public discourse, right? So now we're dealing with who can use what bathroom and when, and you hear people say things um, about these individuals. And so I think that the transgender community has come to say, no, right now, what we're suffering is more important, right? What we're going through is more important. And it's kind of hard to step back and go, fine, you take that spot. Right. right. So I think you see maybe some of that going on. Um, but I think, again, what's interesting is in all of these cases, be, you want to talk about sort of maybe the the two sides to something. Maybe the invisibility of bisexuality has sort of lets it fly more under the radar so that they're not experiencing overt discrimination to the degree that the other sexual minorities are. But as a result, they're suffering more in silence. Right. They're least less likely to come out. We did this this presentation, like I said, a couple months ago. And one of the things we asked, and this is all licensed therapists. Right. So it's 200, whatever it is, licensed therapists who specialize in LGBT therapy. And we asked them, how many of you have ever taken an education course or a continuing education course that talked about how to do therapy for a gay or lesbian client? And the entire room raises their hand. And then you say, how many of you have taken a specific course on how to treat transgender people? And half the audience raises their hand. And we asked, how many of you have taken a single course or continuing education on how to do therapy for a bisexual individual? Not a single hand raised. Not a single hand in the room raised. And so I guess in some ways we go, it's, it's, it's systemic throughout sort of the academy um, that this group is invisible. And it so it seems so odd since it's the largest of the groups, That's but it's invisible, so, right? Yeah. You know, and it's, so it's the overlooking mm-hmm. this group that, it, you know, doesn't have this very out and vocal community and things like that. There's um, Cynthia Nixon, who used to star in Sex in the City. Yeah. She ran for governor of New York mm-hmm. and um, the New York Times Slate magazine, not not these you know, right-wing conspiracy kind of publications, um, kept saying that if she were elected, she'd be the first gay mayor, openly gay mayor. And and the problem is, is that she's not openly gay. She's openly bisexual. She was with a man for years. Her children are with this man. She's with a woman now, and she's married to this woman, but she has always said, I'm bisexual. Mm -hmm. But it, it just falls on deaf ears. No matter how many times she says it, they still say, oh, she's lesbian. Now, are there other groups, um, you know, because I'm thinking of the LGBTQ. IQ plus. So, yeah, I and Q. And, 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 and so these other groups, you know, who are sort of, you know, they sort of fall into that category as well, right? That they don't, you know, have a clear, um, you know, sort of community, I guess. I mean, they do, but not really. Yeah, the, uh, the, o- the only other one that I personally would say is truly truly set aside from society is intersex people. Um, and that's not a sexual orientation. By the way, neither is transgender. Um, the problem is, is that we just have this umbrella called sexual minority, and we have no understanding of what the letters are in it, as if they all have the same lived experience. But the experience even of a gay man is very different than the lived experiences of a lesbian woman. And so we really do a disservice when we just say, you know, yeah, it's just this big acronym and that it's them. Right. And that is what we tend to do when we go, well, you have heterosexual versus them type of thing. But those, it'd be like white versus everything else. Well, the experience of being an Asian American is very different than an experience of being an African American or Muslim American or whatever it is. Um, and so that the problem is, is that, you know, you go there, well, there's maybe safety or strength in numbers. And so we put them all as sexual minorities, but they really don't necessarily belong at all under the umbrella. Mm. I mean, there really isn't a same lived experience. Intersexed um, individuals are simply truly invisible. I look at research all that we do I conduct research all the time and the idea that when you ask someone sex, it's male or female. Right? Well, you know, up to three percent of people in the world are intersex people. They don't chromosomally fall into either of those. And so the fact that it's just 
isn't even there, right? Is is like okay, right? That that's just completely invisible. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, the idea that transgender is there under this other group of people that we're talking about their sexual orientation, not their gender, right? So, yeah. so I've always I go back and forth with this one. Um, based on your research, is your sexuality determined? Is it innate or is it environmental? Thank you. Nature or, or nurture? Both. Nature or nurture? Nature um, or nurture? I, listen, I always say, you know, if I could be so bold as to make an assumption, if I say, when did you decide to be heterosexual? I didn't. That's right. <laughs> There's your answer. Okay. So then it's born. You're born a certain way. Yeah. I mean, listen, we talk about things like, in, especially under in bisexual individuals, um, that some people may not even recognize that, that they are bisexual until all of a sudden at some point they meet someone. Um, they've always thought of themselves as either straight or gay or lesbian. And somehow there's just this, this person that really attracts you um, and that can, wow. You it know. reminds me of the movie, Call Me By Your Name. Oh, I haven't seen it. You haven't? Oh, you have to see it. I have to see it. Yeah, it's very good. Deal. Yes. Deal. Netflix. Yeah, it's really good, actually. But um, I want to talk about, because we were talking about this earlier before we were on. Um, about the, that's when all the good stuff happened, <laughs> people. Sorry. About sex addiction. <laughs> yes. Now, I don't know. If yes, you, Greg, we got to get you treated for the numbers. <laughs> <No, I'm just, laughs> he just uses that as an excuse. <laughs> don't start rumors. Um, now, I don't know if you've done research in this area, so I don't want to put you on the spot. But I know you had had some strong feelings about that. And I think it would be helpful for anyone to, to hear you know, some, some actual reasoned yes. thought about it. If you want to hear all my reasoned thoughts backed up by data. Um, I do have an article in Psychology Today um, that I wrote. Um, Joy writes a column, by the way. Monthly oh. column, is it? or by what? Yeah, a regular column in Psychology Today. So, yes. yeah, it became awesome. quite irregular while I was writing my book. Mm-hmm. So, um, But I did write um, a column right after the Anthony Weiner scandal mm-hmm. broke. And um, when he finally said, oh, I've got a problem and I'm going to go into treatment. And then there was all of this stuff on sex addiction uh, and Tiger Woods who claims sex addiction and all these things. Um, and Dr. Drew, who's a big proponent of sex addiction. Um, but the research isn't bearing it out. And so Nicole Prouse, who's a researcher at UCLA, David Lay also, um, there's a lot of people who've delved deeply into this and looking at sort of the neuroscience Uh, the brain behavior related to addiction. And so for something to be an addiction, it has to have meet certain criteria. And that is that, that something has to go from sort of this want to a need. Um, but that it's also gotta be followed up with things like, uh, if you don't have it, you have withdrawal symptoms, for example, right? That there's physiological markers, to it. Um, One of the hallmarks of addiction we find is that when an addict is first introduced to, let's say, a drug, right? So cocaine, heroin, you find that the pleasure center of the brain lights up, right? And the want center of the brain lights up. But as addiction sets in, what you find with people that are addicts is that that need part of the brain still lights up, but the pleasure part doesn't. So in other words, you're no longer receiving pleasure from the stimulus. It's just this physiological need for it, right? And that if you don't have it, you suffer all these withdrawal symptoms that we can clearly chronicle. So what we find with things like sex, you know, problem sex behavior or, you know, chocolate addicts, right? Whatever it is that, that you really like a lot is that they really like, they have high like for this um, and low impulse control. And so what we find is no matter how problematic, for example, maybe porn viewing can be for someone, right? It's destroying their relationships. They're not going to work. No denying that it's a pro- that Anthony Weiner has a problem regulating uh, his behavior in that area. And it's costing him, right? I'm not arguing that it doesn't. Um, but what we find is, but there's still, you really still like it, right? You're still getting all of that pleasure from it. And you have this low impulse control. 
So it's like, why am I, you know, listen, I would eat hot fudge Sundays every day of the week. I know that it makes me, me <laughs> it makes me fat and it's not good for my health. And thankfully I have enough impulse control that even though I want to do that, I don't. And so, so it's that's, a behavior, it's a, a behavior that can be changed. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, and, and, but it's also that recognition that, listen, that, that makes life really hard, right? People that overeat tend to have the same thing. Food is re rewarding, tastes good. But if I can't control my eating because I have this low impulse control, it is all about regulation, right? It's that. So yes, things like that tend to much better be treated with, with therapy. So people are, and it's a very different therapy, sorry, than we would give an addict because right. an addict has to go through sort of a detox period and those kind of things. And so the whole psychology of the treatment is very different. And so if you call something sex addiction and it's really not, it's an impulse control issue, then you're giving them the wrong tools to, to, to be able to regulate their behavior. So that's why it's important. It's not just semantics. Is gambling an addiction then? So that's a good one. So gambling actually tends to show up in the brain um, in more ways as an addiction than sex does. But you'll still find that it's also an impulse control and kind I, of issue. I promise we're not going to keep running down a list, but is food also, does it fall in, is that a legitimate addiction no. or no? No, food, food, food shows up in the research just like sex does. So people are essentially using the language of addiction and, put, everything. and putting it on. And, and I can see how that's really potentially very harmful. Yeah. And it, and it does that idea that it, first it's the idea of, uh, uh, you know, uh, absconding from responsibility that it's, this, is a, this is an issue I have, and it's under my volitional control. And so I need to learn the skills to control it versus addiction is a more of a brain chemistry issue, right? And so it's a matter of, listen, you, we, we've got to detox you off of this thing. And then now we have to teach you the skills not to get back on it, or you'll become addicted again, right? Um, very different, because people that tend towards drug and alcohol addictions will be potential addicts throughout their life, mm -hmm. right? Okay. Because their brain chemistry is such that they are predisposed to it. There are other people who could drink and drink and drink and not become addicted to alcohol. So it's a brain difference in that way. One thing we'd like to do when we talk to faculty or chairs is, you know, kind of make your pitch for your program. And, you know, We've addressed a lot, you know, in terms of some of the interesting and scary parts of, of all this, which is really just fascinating. We could talk forever about it. But what would you say to a prospective student who wasn't sure and they thought, well, you know, because you've mentioned this before, you know, you're you're 16 and you say, oh, I'm really helpful with my friends and helping them with their problems. But like what, when you really get down to brass tacks, like what what would you say? Well, let me let me take that into in two parts. So one is sort of the why psychology, but the other point would be why Woodbury psychology. Um, and so I will say on here what I tell every perspective student, and it's exactly what I told my own kids. And that is when you're looking for colleges, find a place that fits you. You don't understand how much, in a sense, you are looking for where you're going to be spending the next four years of your life. And it, you're looking for a community. So the other part of college is not just the education, but there's a social aspect to it. So I went to the University of Texas, 60,000 college students and 100,000 people in the football stadium and all of those kinds of things. And it was chaos. I, I had a class my freshman year with a thousand students in it. My professor was a speck on a stage with his giant jumbotron. And I couldn't tell you the name of a single professor I had um, as an undergraduate. But I loved the chaos. I loved the football games. I loved this, you know, taking a bus to get from one side of campus to the other, that kind of thing. If that's what you're looking for, you would be miserable at a small private university. You will feel smothered, right? You will feel uh, just 
out of sync. But, you know, if you're looking for a place where you're going to actually know your professors and your professors are going to know you and you and your classmates um, are going to form these lifelong relationships. I run a graduate alumni dinner every year and I invite all my alumni back to come celebrate our graduating class that year. And I have students that come back from, you know, 10 years ago, whatever. And they always come in and immediately it's a, it's a reconnection with the people they graduated with. So, you know, if you want that experience, if you don't want to be anonymous and you don't want to be faceless and nameless, then you will just feel lost at a large university and it won't fit you. So I always say visit campuses. If you can visit the school, I think if we're the right fit for you, you're going to come to Woodbury because this campus, I've been here 20 years. I still drive up on the campus and I just go, oh, my God, it's so beautiful. I love it. Right. Um, so even as a, as a professor, uh, as much as I'm a researcher, um, I would never teach at a large university. I couldn't get that connection. I don't want a class of 300 students. You know, I don't want to just be up there pontificating and eh. no, I want to teach. I want to discuss. I want to, I want to just profess. Um, so I think that's the biggest thing. Find a school that fits you. Visit schools. I always tell students, come sit in on a psych class here. You're welcome. Come sit in. Just get the feel. Talk to some of our students because I'm going to tell you it's great. They're going to tell you the truth, right? So come on in. I mean, I always say that. That's how you find out if it's a fit for you. Um, and then I just think that we really do have one of the best psychology programs. We really have one of the most rigorous programs. But because we're allowed to do this individual attention with our students, um, it's about, you know, I say my expectations are really, really high. But it's my job to lift you up to those ex expectations. And I can only do that by knowing what your strengths are, your weaknesses are, what things cause you anxiety, right? Those kinds of things. And so I say that our students are capable of these really uh, high standards because they receive the support here. Yeah. And I always just when I hear you speaking and I know we don't like to do our marketing plugs, but um, again, I think also for networking purposes, I mean, it's just so much better to be at a small university where, you know, the professors, you know, the chair, they know a lot of working professionals, they're working professionals. So, um, yeah, I think that's a huge perk, which is huge when you're going into the workforce. So anyway, yeah, You've I think we've used up all our time. I love it. Thank you. Thank you so much. You are so interesting. And also we should discuss you having your own show at some point. Mm. Yeah. Take it. I will take your sex questions now. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for coming in. We Joy. really appreciate Thanks, it. Thanks you guys. I really appreciate it. Bye-bye.